Good morning, or at whatever time you may be viewing this video. Welcome to our first day of the week Bible class. We continue in the book of Acts. We are in chapter 23, but actually beginning the reading with the last part of chapter 22. This is for January the 31st, 2021. We are in Acts chapter 23. This time through the book of Acts, we are not using a verse-to-verse analytical approach. We are taking one chapter a class, and we begin with four fast facts, and after that, our reading and our study of Acts chapter 23. Four fast facts. This is the part of Acts where Luke reports to us all the opposition Paul encountered when he returned to Jerusalem and with his intention to continue on to Rome. There is no sign of compromise in this man. Against all the dissension and the violence and the threats, Paul is steadfastly determined to preach the gospel. What was said of Jesus is here said of Paul, we find nothing wrong in this man. Let's begin our reading actually back in verse 30 of chapter 22 over through the 11th verse of chapter 23. I'm beginning in Acts 22, verse 30. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priest and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. This is action taken by the tribune to determine what the issue is in regard to Paul. Now we begin in the 23rd chapter. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up, and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? 
And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. The day previous to this, we covered in our Wednesday night class back in chapter 22, where Paul addressed the Jewish people in Jerusalem. When Paul spoke of going to the Gentiles with the gospel, the crowd reacted by forming mob action. They said, away with such a fellow from the earth. After claiming his Roman citizenship, Paul was released only to have to stand before the Sanhedrin Council, the supreme governing body of Judaism. Paul begins with this, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Let's pause at that, that statement. God built into us what might be called an alarm system. It is a prompting device that either approves or disapproves of our conduct. If you do something you believe is wrong, your conscience will disapprove, and the signal you get is guilty. Here's what is crucial about the conscience. It must be programmed with the Word of God. If that is not installed in your conscience, if the Word of God is not the program your conscience operates on, it may approve of your conduct when you have actually done wrong. So there was a case of Paul who did what he thought was right, but he was wrong. His conscience wasn't functioning properly when he opposed Jesus Christ and persecuted Christians. It can be said he was always sincere, but for a time, he was sincerely wrong. Another Ananias is introduced. This is not the same man who baptized Paul. Ananias was a very common Jewish name, and this Ananias was the sitting Jewish high priest. As soon as Paul began to speak, this Ananias, the high priest, commanded that Paul be stricken in the mouth. The Jewish historian Josephus depicted this Ananias as one of the very worst high priests. Perhaps it was Paul's claim about living in good conscience toward God, or this could have simply been an impulse or an act to show Paul who was in charge. But you consider next Paul's response. God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? First, let's just observe these are very strong words used by Paul, yet true as hypocrisy was the besetting sin of the Jewish leaders. Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? Here, the common conjecture goes in two different directions, and both may be so. One, Paul did not have good eyesight. Remember, he's been beaten. Two, this assembly may have been convened so quickly Ananias was not wearing 
the ceremonial robes. So Paul corrects himself. I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Well, not the best way to start this interview, but there's more. Paul perceived that this assembly of men was divided. Let me explain. There were Sadducees, and they were anti-supernaturalist, meaning they didn't believe in miracles or the resurrection of Christ, or for that matter, any resurrection of the dead ever. There were Pharisees who believed miracles and resurrection were possible, but generally they rejected Jesus Christ. So Paul brings this up, I believe, not just as a distraction, but to highlight that they were not on the same page. And each party had their own agenda. The body of men was not by any means united. They were all mixed up about a lot of things. And Paul was caught in their web of competing agendas and selfish religious party interests. And thus, in verse 7, it says the assembly was divided. It was necessary for this division to be made manifest. Listen again, verses 6 through 8. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other part Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. See, this had to be well known. But the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Now, before you think that Paul has ruined himself, notice the outcome. Some scribes take the floor and announce, we find nothing wrong in this man. Then something else. This comes up. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? Paraphrase. Men, we had better proceed carefully. If this all turns out to be true, we don't want to be in trouble with God. We don't want to be on the wrong side. So violence broke out and Paul was removed from the proceeding. I should mention some manuscripts include the phrase in the King James, let us not fight against God. Verse 11, I'm certain, was the most important part of this episode. Verse 11, the most important part of this episode. The Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Now, the Lord didn't do this for everybody. He didn't do this for Paul every day. This was an occasion where, in the Lord's perfect perception, it was time for Paul to have this encouragement and this hope directly from heaven. From this point, Paul knew all would happen in Jerusalem and it would lead not to his death. The Lord said, you must testify also in Rome. So there was a greater plan. Paul's situation was a part of that greater plan. It's all about getting the gospel heard. 
We come now to Acts 23, 12 through 22. Acts 23, we're at verses 12 through 22. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of this ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going alongside him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than forty of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one, that you have informed me of these things. So, here's one of the first cases of a hunger strike. Forty men who give their word, they will kill the Apostle Paul. Can you imagine? You are tired and weak and hungry, and you drive right by Whataburger because your intent is not to satisfy your appetite. You've got somebody to kill. Somebody who has good news. Arrangements were made for an ambush, a conspiracy of sorts put together by these men. Someone said once uh, they had empty stomachs and empty heads. There may be some truth in that. We go into this, and Paul went into this knowing it wouldn't work, because what do we know? The Lord had said Paul would arrive in Rome to testify. So God used Paul's relatives to tell Paul about this, we know that it didn't work. Paul was dismissed and told, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. That was said to the boy. We wonder about the men who put themselves under the curse. Since they didn't kill Paul, did they die of hunger or thirst or just renounce their vow? We don't know. We continue in Acts 23 at verse 23, reading over through verse 35. Acts 23, 23 through 35. Then he called two of the centurions 
and said, Get ready two hundred soldiers and seventy horsemen and two hundred spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency the Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen, and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. When it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. So this is about taking Paul to Caesarea. This would be the next step to deal with Paul as a Roman citizen. A formal letter was written by Claudius Lysias to the governor, Felix, a letter that is remarkably objective. And at the end of the letter, Paul is under heavy guard, awaiting the hearing before Felix. That's Acts chapter 23. Takeaways. Be sure your conscience is informed by God's word. As I mentioned earlier, if your conscience hasn't been well informed or programmed by God's word, you may think you are right when you are wrong. Since God's word is available, there is no excuse. There are people all over the world who think they're doing God's will, but they have not informed their choices and their conscience with God's word. There are many who are sincere, who have no ingrained rebellion against God, but are perfectly satisfied. The problem is they have not objectively consulted Scripture. Conscience will serve us well only when it's programmed with God's Word. I want you to notice what Paul didn't do. He didn't leave anything out. Since the hope of the gospel and the resurrection of the dead troubled the Sadducees, Paul could have left that part out of his preaching. I mean, even before this event, he didn't do that. We can't do that. Remember, when Paul was meeting with the elders at Ephesus, he said, I held back nothing that was profitable. I delivered the whole counsel of God. That must be our commitment. For instance, what the Bible says about marriage is under attack. And there may be some temptation to just 
leave that part out so that somebody's not offended. We cannot do that because God has spoken. We must believe, teach, and practice what God has said, not just in part, but in whole. Taking courage and being calm in the composure of his faith. Verse 11. It would be hard to exaggerate the calm courage which would result after Paul heard directly from the Lord. Jesus had appeared to Paul on the Damascus Road in Jerusalem, at Corinth and later on the way to Rome, Acts 27, 23. At first, we may read this and think, now, that's what I want. I need the Lord to speak to me. Well, he has spoken to all of us, and we have his word printed and bound. From his word, we can take courage, and only by taking courage from him, through his word, can we endure whatever hardship and obstacles may discourage us. All of this accompanied by our prayers to him. Number four. Even when the most careful and cunning of human plots cannot succeed, God forbids it. Even the most careful and cunning of human plots cannot succeed if God forbids it. Sometimes it is God's will that choices evil men make be carried out. When God in his perfect wisdom does not want a plan to succeed, it will not. Men in vain take counsel with one another and attempt to defeat God. That's the teaching of the second psalm. Number five, evidence is strong against the presuppositions of the Sadducees. We have so much evidence that Jesus arose from the dead. When all is considered, we are certain the God who created the universe and made human beings can and did work many miracles through Christ and his apostles. Evidence speaks loudly against the presumption of the Sadducees, who were the modernists of their time. Number six, even with God's assurance, still you take every precaution and responsibility for yourself. Safety is a value. While Paul was given assurance from the Lord that he would arrive in Rome and testify there, he didn't relax or dismiss responsibility. He called one of the centurions and asked him to take his nephew to the authorities. The lesson for us is, even when you have God's assurance, that shouldn't cause you to relax completely and dismiss personal responsibility about your safety and the safety of others. God expects us to believe in him, but never let that belief make us inactive or lazy or irresponsible. Number seven, about violence. Paul lived with violence day after day, but he was never a participant. He was never a participant. Remember, I described it like this on Wednesday. The attitude was, if we do not like your religion, if we think you've said something against our religion, if you're going to the Gentiles with a new message you claim to be from the Lord and we don't like that, we're going to kill you. That's how violence starts on that very childish, self-centered, arrogant level. 
I want us to think about this. Fanaticism and violence has been a way of life over in the Middle East for hundreds of years. And maybe to some extent, that same kind of thinking and immaturity has now surfaced in our country. It is right for us to pray to God that we never become a part of any violent acts. I'm going to leave you with this from uh, a book I'm reading about the book of Acts called In the Steps of the Apostles by a Christian, Charlie Brackett. Doesn't God work in wonderful ways? He told Paul back in verse 11 that he had plans for him in Rome. And though a band of evil Jews, backed by the highest authority among the Jews, agreed on an oath to take his life, God shaped both circumstance and event to thwart their plan and accomplish his will. He put a young boy in just the right place at just the right time. He used the slip of some conspirator's tongue. And he guided the dispositions of the boy, the centurion, and the commander to assure that each used the information to the benefit of Paul. Isn't God great? Looking ahead, the record, of course, shows that Paul did go to Rome. I wonder how long those evil Jews went before they broke their oath and had a meal. Thank you for listening.